check out my new book, Coping Courageously, a heart-centered guide for navigating a loved one's illness without losing yourself. It's appropriate for you as a clinician, for your patients, and for anyone you know who has a seriously ill loved one or an aging parent. Check it out and tell a friend. Welcome to the Integrative Palliative Podcast, where we talk about integrative symptom management and physician well-being, because every physician deserves to have satisfying work, and every patient deserves an effective and joyful physician. Let's get started. Welcome to the Integrative Palliative Podcast. Today, we have an amazing guest to talk about a topic that not everybody talks about. We're going to talk about Sjogren's and how to use all of the wellness tools that we have to help manage Sjogren's and other similar diseases. So we have Dr. Kara Wada with us today. Dr. Wada is board certified in adult and pediatric allergy, immunology, and lifestyle medicine. She is a Sjogren's patient. She's also a certified life coach, TEDx speaker, and Dr. Midwest 2023. Congratulations. <laughs> it's because of everything that she's learned and has gone through as a patient that she's made it her mission to use the privilege that she has as a physician to help us all navigate our health and wellness more effectively and efficiently. And most importantly, to find ways to ensure that everyone is fully seen and cared for as a patient and as a person. And as the founder and CEO of The Crunchy Allergist, Dr. Kara helps those struggling with misbehaving immune systems become immune confident. Welcome, Dr. Wada. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to connect. Tell us a little bit about being immune confident and how you got wow. to that concept in that place. What's, what's your journey? So I was diagnosed with Sjogren's about three years ago. But what I've realized is that in hindsight, there were breadcrumbs dating back to even when I was in college that would, at least in hindsight, say, oh, that was the start of this process of, you know, my immune system going haywire. And through kind of the diagnostic odyssey and significant flare up and some of the things that went on subsequently, I really realized how much my privilege played into expediting my evaluation, my treatment. When I went on the internet looking for support, looking for, you know, um, ways to help support and become empowered in, in my own health and well-being, I was totally overwhelmed. And I felt really unclear about where to go, which how should I be eating? How much should I be exercising? You know, what to do? And I thought, oh my goodness, if I, if I'm boarded in the immune system and immune system health and I'm overwhelmed and I have no clue what to do, what does this mean for everyone else? That's the essence of what I kept coming back to when we feel confident in what we're doing and trust that the things that we are doing day in and day out are helping to serve our health as opposed to, you know, kind of proverbially shooting ourselves in the foot every day. Right. Um, it, it's really that, that sense of confidence that I kept coming back to. It's also a play on words for anyone who has a little bit of immune system um, understanding or study. Um, there's a term called immune competent, which means that your immune system is able to recognize and fight off infections and is responding appropriately so there's a little bit of tongue in cheek kind of play with that as well, um, I which <laughs> I am always a sucker for a good pun. So. <laughs> so one thing that strikes me in just hearing about your story is that you were a specialist in the immune system 
before you faced an immune system Mm -hmm. issue. What do you think about that? Like, was there some body knowledge? Is that just random? What do you think about that? Well, it's, it is fascinating. And I have, so I am still practicing allergy and and immunology. I'm um, at Ohio state and we work very closely with our counterparts at nationwide children's and we have a pretty decent sized department. And it's interesting within our department, there are a greater percentage of us and those with family members that have either allergy, autoimmune conditions. So I don't know what's in the water. Um, I, we haven't explored wow. that <laughs> academically yet, but there it, it is. It, it is fascinating. And we all were in our positions before those diagnoses came about. Um, but I do sometimes wonder if there is some like internal, almost like a compass that kind of guided a wisdom. In, in wisdom and thinking about, you know, how I had these little breadcrumbs dropped along the way, it it does provide a little bit of beard stroking (laughs) activity of like what's going on. I think one of the other things though, I've realized just from my pure knowledge gap standpoint is for me taking my internal medicine boards and then allergy immunology is of course a slightly different viewpoint than rheumatology when we think about kind of coverage, but Sjogren's would would be in part covered on what we're expected to know. But really what I knew about that condition were some very simple multiple choice question answers. Like what are the antibodies associated with it? Right. What does the patient look like? Tends to be, you know, a retired woman. Um, She has dryness in her eyes and her mouth, maybe bad teeth. And she has SSA antibody positive. But that is such a small part of the disease and really is not reflective of a good portion of folks who are diagnosed with Sjogren's. Can you do two things? One is tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about the breadcrumbs and then tell us about what what is it that we're missing? What is it really like to be someone who lives with Sjogren's? Yeah, so I'll I'll start a little bit with um with the symptoms. So when we think about even the lab results, it's estimated that about 40% of folks with Sjogren's are seronegative. So their blood work's completely normal oh, or wow. virtually normal. Um which I never knew. And that's a pretty that that's almost half of people, right? Like that's a yeah. lot. Um and the unfortunate kind of reality is the next step in diagnosis many times is a lip biopsy, which although is not a super complicated procedure. It's still a procedure. Um, It requires a visit to another specialist, usually maybe an ear, nose, and throat or oral medicine specialist. And even then the capture rate is not a hundred percent. So that's kind of, you know, a logistical issue. A lot of patients will deal with intense fatigue, a lot of body pain that will look very similar or feel similar to fibromyalgia. Um, Sometimes there is some arthritis component, but not always. And um, one of the other issues that comes up frequently and I think has been discussed a little bit more now with long COVID is dysautonomia. So um, the autonomic nervous system is misbehaving. So folks may have symptoms similar to POTS or changes in blood pressure and temperature regulation and other um, things that just seem weird and really uncomfortable and scary, but are hard to understand. And many physicians aren't well-trained in picking up on those symptoms. I didn't know that actually. Yeah. there And there's a lot of like small fiber neuropathy that will kind of come into play with some of the pain um, issues. And certainly dryness is, is a significant 
component, but not in everyone's disease. So that's not a hundred percent. It also strikes me that if you have all of those symptoms, people may not lead with dryness, right? They might lead with the things that sometimes make the medical system blow off, especially if it's women, like I feel tired, I feel a little dizzy, I'm achy. They, people are like, ah, yeah. Uh, Go treat your anxiety. Right. Exactly. Go to your primary care doctor and sleep more. Yeah. Who has 15 minutes with you right? and still has a whole bunch of boxes to check. So thinking back to breadcrumbs, you know, one of the other symptoms I neglected to mention, most patients will deal with some sort of irritable bowel or digestive issues. And so dating back to even my freshman year in college, I remember not being able to tolerate certain foods anymore. I would purposely avoid undercooked broccoli or onion because I knew if I had just like a tiny little taste, I was going to be in digestive agony through my chemistry lab. And, and what's funny is like, I never, I never told or asked a medical professional about it. You know, I just kind of kept on right busy, you know, keep on keeping on. And then in medical school, there was an episode I recall sitting in the library studying intensely and it otherwise is this beautiful, sunny, quiet, you know, study environment. And I have this crushing like external chest pain. And now I recognize it probably was esophageal spasm. But at the time I'm calling my mom in tears, like convinced I'm having a heart attack, which, you know, she then is like, no, you're just anxious. (laughs) Like you're fine. Like I know anxiety, like, you know, you know, so, you know, there's this like, I'm learning to ignore, you know, I ignore my own symptoms. I'm learning this behavior also through interactions with my my mom and what she has learned through her, you know, her life and through her interactions with society. And then as an intern, I had incredible back stiffness where I'm a med peds intern. We're on rounds that go for hours, right? Like right. a little herd of going around with our right. owl, you know, and I'm looking for every opportunity to lean on that computer workstation or to stretch against the wall. And at a certain point, it got so bad. I actually made an appointment with my internist and it took a lot like to make that appointment because I distinctly remember earlier that year, like I refused to even like take time off to go get a urinary tract infection, like treated. So it took a considerable amount of pain to actually prompt that visit. And I think she knew that I wasn't going to necessarily come back because she ordered like labs and kind of did the <laughs> things, right? That she's like, oh, she, yeah, this is, I, and she'd been, she wasn't that far out from training. You know, I think she realized how um, really there was no, uh, I didn't have any ability at that point to, I didn't have any concept of self-compassion or self-care or anything. Right. And and I recall my total protein was quite high. My albumin was normal. And now I kind of know what that was about, but she had asked me to repeat my labs and I never did. I just kept sure. on. I, I put the ibuprofen in my pocket and carried on. And it was over the years then that, you know, I wasn't able to wear mascara because or my contacts, because I would look like a raccoon or we get lips that were so chapped. I was at the Sephora, like looking for the absolute best lip balm because they were like cracked and bleeding. Wow. But it was after I had had my second pregnancy. Um, I'm now, you know, mom, I've learned, 
even more how to ignore my symptoms because as a mom, you know, like you just put your kids first and I'm at my dental checkup and the hygienist is like, Oh, your mouth tissues look dry. Wow. And I was like, Hmm, maybe I should get that checked out. And it was that like small comment that was like the switch that was kind of said, Oh, you need to stop gaslighting yourself. And I scheduled an appointment with my internist and because I was like, Oh, I wonder if this is Sjogren's like all these things started adding up. Did it make you make you think backwards about all of the little mm-hmm. things that you would oh, yeah. off over the- and I had had like an episode of parotitis, like several years before. And I even had an episode of idiopathic anaphylaxis as an allergy fellow, which wow. normal. like none of these things like <laughs> shut me up, but it was this little comment by the dental hygienist. And, um, and I, I remember going into that visit with my internist, I like rehearsed what I was going to say. And I was nervous because I didn't want to be like that patient. Right. right? Who thinks they have all the things you mean? Yeah. And like, and being demanding, like, oh, I want you to order the ENA panel because I think I have Sjogren. Like, right. And she did, even though I, I knew her well, I knew her intentions were from a good place. She was skeptical. And part of it too, was just trying to reassure me, you know, also not wanting to believe that something could be wrong. And so when the labs came back, very abnormal, I had this weird sense of like validation and relief. Sure. Before the fear. It's both good news and bad news at the same time. Yeah. Cause at least like I had an answer for why I felt so cruddy. Just to stop for one second. I think it's, it's a remarkable part of the story that the combination of a dental hygienist Mm -hmm. and you advocating for yourself was what got you to a diagnosis, right? Because if your internist was skeptical, who knows, but it's possible if you went in there with a different, without the strength that you really wanted to know, you might've just been reassured. You know, once I learned the statistics as to 40% being seronegative, I don't know that I would have had the strength to go further from that. So it's so important. That's why I think this is so important to talk about because I think it's one of the things that physicians may not think about. And, you know, it's challenging, obviously, to be a physician because not everybody who thinks they have a thing has a thing. Like some people are anxious and some people do just need to drink more water or manage their stress, but not everybody. And so how how do we raise the level of of suspicion in our mind so that we don't miss this, I think is really important. So um, thank you. All that to say, thank you for talking about this, because I think it's really important. And particularly that statistic of how many people are seronegative, because the physician might order one test and be like, okay, look, it's not that, but they're going to miss 40% of the people. And 90% of those who are affected by Sjogren's are women. So I don't think we can discount the gender bias that comes into play. Yeah. So there's no doubt, particularly with the kinds of symptoms, oh, my mouth feels dry, I'm tired, I feel achy, my back hurts. That could easily be blown off. And a young woman with a stressful job, oh, you know, try to relax, try to manage your anxiety, try to sleep more. Why don't you start walking every day? Right. That could ease that symptom complex often leads people mm-hmm. to think, oh, that's just stress and related. I mean, symptoms. the other the other symptom that I have not talked as much about is, you know, folks will come in and you know, I've experienced this I, this brain fog of your thinking just isn't what it should be. Difficulty coming up with a word, like word finding difficulty or having symptoms that maybe 
you know, suggestive of attention deficit type issues. And those so often are just brushed off as mommy brain too. Right. All that whole symptom complex, including that brain fog Mm -hmm. can be put into this bucket of stress. Try, try to do things to manage your stress. So I think it's really important to just raise the level of awareness so that people think about it. Because if you don't think about it, you can't diagnose it. So then I like doubled down after, you know, that initial grieving period, I uh, made an appointment with my friend, colleague, and now rheumatologist and um, confirmed the diagnosis of systemic Sjogren's and started on hydroxychloroquine. But I also looked at the lack of really treatment progress for Sjogren's. So if you look at treatment for rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, there's a whole host of biologics now that have really changed um, how rheumatologists care for those patients. Sjogren's has kind of been, there's some things coming down the pipeline, but there's nothing there yet. And so it's hydroxychloroquine. And then you wait until you end up with potentially a lymphoma or something, you know, more serious. And then you get rituximab, which as an allergist immunologist, I treat people who are immune deficient after their (laughs) rituximab. So I was like, okay, what's in the middle? And so I'm like, okay, we're going to double down. I'm going to show Sjogren's who's boss. And so I started exercising. (laughs) I had my green smoothie every day and I made sure to put my superfood like supplement, like scoop in there and all was fine and well until like about eight weeks later or so when I started developing daily fevers and they didn't go away. So it wasn't a daycare bug. And I got incredibly fatigued and then my urine turned dark. And so it it turned out, I ended up, um, to make a long story short, um, I ended up with an acute hepatitis that ended up in the end through liver biopsy was suggestive that the superfood supplement was not so super in my instance. And so, wow. So it was kind of this, you know, perfect storm of like, okay, well now what? And so one thing led to another. And I think, you know, it was, it was through that and a lot of the confusion and overwhelm navigating, okay, what, you know, I I thought I was doing everything right. And I really shot myself in the foot. So what is the science that's out there? How, you know, if I'm having this much difficulty and if I'm really desperate and turning to, you know, supplements that aren't regulated as ideally as, you know, we would maybe like, you know, what is everyone else doing? And so that's when I ended up um, pursuing lifestyle medicine program and, and just other continuing education to, you know, bolster my own knowledge for my own health, but then also to help others too. That's a really fascinating story. So, because I, I think you're right that lots of people feel like, okay, I'll be healthy then. And they look online and yeah. s- find something that says, do this. And then they do that. So before we get to the lifestyle medicine piece, which is really, really important, I was struck by this idea that you go online and then you see so much conflicting advice even, I imagine. So, you know, there's one group of people, whole food, plant-based, it's the only way you should be. And then there's also a cohort that um, promotes the autoimmune protocol, which is a more paleo-based, but very restrictive elimination diet, a lot more centered on animal protein. And then there's like everything in between. Um, but these are the two big factions. I, after my episode with the the liver shenanigans, I actually tried autoimmune protocol for a while, actually felt pretty good. 
for a time being, really quickly found myself into like falling into a very obsessive thought pattern surrounding food, worrying about what I was eating, what I wasn't eating, Mm -hmm. um, spending a lot of mental energy and time and stress thinking about food um, and and restricting and also realizing that long-term it was not at all sustainable. And for many reasons, environmentally, you know, thinking about risks of cardiovascular disease that come along with um, autoimmune conditions, that was something, my husband's a cardiologist, so he was totally freaked out by how much meat we were eating. Oh, interesting. Um, I bet. (laughs) And and just the sheer, like, excuse my language, pain in the ass factor. Yeah, I had like two young kids and it just, it wasn't, we wanted to travel and do things and it just wasn't practical. And so then I really started digging into the supposed science behind it and realized that there wasn't much. That's interesting. I think that this is such an important conversation because it's so easy for people to fall into one dogmatic box or another. And, And I think the thing that just makes it so clear to me that there's not one answer is that there are so many boxes and all the people in their box are convinced that this is the only box, right? You have to be paleo or keto, or you have to be a raw diet, or you have to be vegan or you don't like, and, and how is a person supposed to figure out what is best for them? I do tend to fall back to healthy, whole food, regular person eating, even if it's just for what you said before, which is becoming obsessively anxious about what you eat for the rest of your life is also not so healthy, regardless of what it is. Absolutely. And I think once I reevaluated my relationship with food, that helped just as much as changing what I actually was eating too. Yeah. So, you know, once I loosened up a little bit and allowed some pleasure, you know, and, and, and really aimed for more balance yeah, yeah. in what we were doing, you know, realizing that we could go out to eat as a family or we could travel. And I still could make decisions that were, you know, ordering things yeah. that would help support my health, but I also could have some indiscretions here or there. And the worst that would happen is maybe I would end up with a stomach ache. Like, it wasn't the end of the world or, a, you know, a right. little more joint pain, you know, and like, so kind of feeling that out and realizing that I didn't have to fear things, you know, looking and looking at some of the literature, we know that increased stress has impacts on our immune system. Exactly. It just regulates our immune system, right? So being stressed yeah. out about what you eat constantly may not ultimately exactly. balance your immune system in the way you're thinking. And you know, I think looking back, one of the big shifts I had when we when I switched to autoimmune protocol was that that was the point where I really switched to more of a whole food based diet. I really eliminated a lot of the processed foods. And I think that that also changed, you know, I've always loved cooking. Um, so that at least has been um, something I could kind of lean into with all of this, but, you know, expanded my skills and what I nice. could substitute for different things and getting creative. And so then when I kind of worked to adapt that to a more whole food plant focused, reintroducing legumes and beans and nuts and, you know, nightshades and some of these things that are incredibly healthy foods, but are not a part of that eating protocol. Um, it, it really think I kind of found the synergy of, you know, 
increasing the healthy things and coming from this place of abundance rather than this, um, always this constant thought of what are we restricting? I love that. I think that is really important. That idea that, that food is good food is nourishing and generative. Yeah. And having some fun factors in there, you know? Yeah. Well, even, even that idea of, of sort of spending it where you can, like if you go to Paris, you probably have a croissant. I'll probably have a couple. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So given your personal experience, your doctor brain and your research, what way of eating have you learned? I really enjoy um, plant fo- plant forward way of eating, but I also am a lifelong Midwesterner. And I occasionally, even though I know that they are, <laughs> you know, like on the bad, the bad list, whatever, like per- I love a good bratwurst every once in a while or a piece of bacon. Like I know that the processed <laughs> meats are, you know, probably some of the nutritionally not the best, right? For many reasons. But having one, you know, a couple times a year, like still provides a lot of joy, like a cultural type experience. I, one of the recipes I'll come back to time and time again for our family, I loved sloppy joes growing up. And so I make sloppy joes with lentils and I found um, some whole grain buns that are like, you know, pretty reasonable to have. And we'll make some sweet potato fries and my kids, which are seven, four and a half and 15 months, like they actually gobble it up. Like, um, and so that's, you nice. know, some of the ways that we've started to incorporate taking some of those flavors and recipes that are homey for, you know, to what I grew up with. And then my husband is Japanese American. So a lot of kind of Asian influence in what we cook too, and being able to kind of bring those together. I love that. What I love about that is that you're not saying that you have to eat in a way that doesn't feel culturally familiar. You're just talking about what can I switch out? So can I use lentils instead of ground beef, right? Can I use sweet potatoes instead of white potatoes? So that, that, that you're modifying things so that it still feels like familiar and comforting food, but you're using foods that are healthier. At home sushi nights, we'll make sure to have avocado and cucumber and I'll use a little less rice when I make my rolls just so that it's a little more carb um, balanced with the fat and the protein. And I typically will stick to salmon um, in part because rich in omega-3s, but also less worry about um, heavy metals compared to tuna. And we'll usually have a nice salad with um, like some broccoli sprouts and you know some other things on there too um, to kind of round it out. Nice. What I love about what you just said was- yeah using less rice. So you're not saying that there's either use all the rice in the world or no rice. You're saying if it's a culturally appropriate to what you're eating, you can have some rice, but try to have less. For a while, I was trying to force cauliflower rice on the family. And you can imagine that that did not go over well. <laughs> not so much with, with sushi with like no. rolls or like warm dishes, but like, oh. So that, I think that's actually a great question to bring up though. If you're trying to eat a plant-forward diet and a whole food diet and you have kids and kids are kids and you're not going to be uber rigid, how do you do do that? How do you sort of manage trying to bring in the healthy food? Yeah, so I sit down typically um, every weekend, usually during my daughter's dance class on Saturday morning. And um, before we leave, I'll look through the kitchen. Okay, what do I need to like use up? I kind of shop my own kitchen. 
And I write those things down. And then I think, and ask the family, like, what do you want to eat this week? What sounds good? Kind of look at the weather, just look at our calendars, get an idea of what the week's going to look like. And then typically we'll get the groceries um, based on that. And I'll do like a meal prep session on Sunday afternoon. And so typically I'll make a couple of meals that I know our family will eat pretty reliably. I mean, kids taste preferences will always change, but a few reliable things. And sometimes we'll try to incorporate one or two new recipes depending on the week. And I have a few recipes that are just quick, easy weeknight ones. Like um, the kids will pretty reliably eat broiled salmon and steamed broccoli and rice. And so that's ready within 15 minutes of us getting home. And I've realized that it's that 15 minute to 20 minute mark that is like the the determining factor of whether we're going to go through a drive-through versus make what's at home and what's readily available <laughs> because it's about equal in the amount of time and energy it will take. So I usually try to make sure things are going to be ready and on the table within 10 to 15 minutes of us being home. And so if that's, you know, a soup that's already in the instant pot container, it's already made, we just need to reheat it um, and maybe heat up some bread or something. That's one of the main ways that we've stayed on track is I'll try to plan for five to six nights of the week. And then we have a list of restaurants that we also really enjoy that are, you know, close to us that have more nutritious options for us to get takeout. Terrific. So if people are listening and they want to eat in a more healthy way, in a more immune friendly way, can you give some more yeah. specifics? Of, suppose they don't know what that means to like eat in a healthy way. What what should people do? What specific recipes do you yeah. make? What foods do yeah. you Yeah. So if I'm thinking through kind of what I would aim for in a in a in a perfect day or a good day, um, in the morning, like during the winter time, I really love oatmeal. So, but I'll one of the you know downfalls of oatmeal is it's not super protein rich. So um, either adding a little bit of pea protein, like powder, if you if you like to, um, or if you have like a protein powder that you're you know a fan of, some folks will add a little bit of egg white to their um, oatmeal to kind of add some protein in that way um, when they're cooking it, um, and some fruit. I'll sometimes add in some flax and chia seeds because that's going to add some of the omegas and berries are a great source of antioxidants. During the summer, I tend to love smoothies because it is warmer and I'm in Ohio, it gets humid here. Um, And so I'll aim for adding, again, looking for a balance between the fat and the carbs and in the protein. I'm typically really, you know, to keep my energy going throughout the day, I really need to aim for my body size for about 20 grams of protein in my breakfast. And that um, it's taken some trial and error to see how that comes up. And that's going to be a little different for everyone. So what does that look like? What kind of smoothies would you make? I I do. I tend to have, um, I have on occasion subscribed to like Daily Harvest or, you know, some of those um, companies where they'll send you kind of the fruit and then I'll add some pea protein based protein powder to that and then call it a day. The other um, option, ripple nice. milk is like pea protein based. And so that is a nice plant-based um, soy milk is another one that's going to have a little bit more huh. protein in it just to kind of help since that's usually what's lacking um, in a smoothie. And then aiming to add something that does have some healthy fat, some avocado or chia seeds, um, which is going to get you your omega-3s, um, which overall the standard American diet tends to not have as much omega-3 
um, in it. So that's um, really helpful. In both of those, as I think about things related to Sjogren's, a fair number of us will deal with dysphagia or trouble swallowing. And so those are also foods that are easy to swallow and have a little less difficulty, especially if you are particularly dry. As long as our garden is doing well, I'll usually try to bring in a few like leaves of like kale or something from, you know, some greens um, to throw in there as well. So really thinking about the rainbow um, and then really thinking about a protein, a healthy fat, and ideally a slow burning carb, those three components. So what else do we need to know? So, you know, I think there is so much marketing out there making us believe that we need to embark on an elimination diet of sorts to figure out, okay, what are my food triggers? What are my food allergies? See this all the time in the office with patients because so many folks, um, myself included, have dealt with foods that just don't sit well with, um, with us. The one thing I always like to share um, is that those commercial testing um, products that are out there that are called food sensitivity tests really don't have much um, clinical validation or science behind them. Um, Keeping a journal of your food intake and the symptoms you're experiencing and then working perhaps with an allergist or a dietitian is going to be a much better use of your time, energy, and money to sort out um, which foods may be bothering you or causing more of an issue. I think one of the other big take-home points is diversity is really where it's at. So trying to keep your diet as broad and as least restrictive as possible is ideal, especially as it comes to including different types of plants. And the science really supports that. So pushing yourself a little bit to try some new things that maybe you didn't grow up with or that maybe you didn't particularly like, but maybe you'll try a new recipe that sounds a little more appealing and kind of open up your mind, you know, tap into that curiosity. Like for the longest time, I was really nervous to try tempeh. I have no idea why. It actually makes a pretty good taco (laughs) and it just takes on the flavor. And I think it's similar for some folks with tofu, right? Part of what helped push us out of, I think, you know, the fear of trying some new things, we temporarily subscribed to Purple Carrot. So one of like the meal box Uh programs and that one in particular is all plant-based. And so it it kind of gave us the like the little push that we needed to try like tempeh tacos because it was sent right to our doorstep and here was the recipe. <laughs> and you don't want to waste it. On right? Sunday afternoon, that's what I was prepping and that's what we were eating. Interesting. And at least it was a tried out recipe, you know, that someone had kind of vetted beforehand. I like that as a trick. So to either use a service for that's plant-based so that you're pushed a little bit, or if you don't want to do that to go maybe pick once a week, some healthy food that you haven't used before and look up an online recipe for it, right? Once a week, try something different. The other thing we did several years ago was we um, subscribed to a local community supported agriculture share. So CSA. And so that was a way, like I had never tried kohlrabi or kohlrabi, however you pronounce it before, like this turnip like vegetable. And then um, I happened to be listening to our local NPR radio station and they had a a local cookbook author and chef on. Um, and so there was this book that was the the gift and it was called The Vegetable Butcher. And it was this great, um, I, I still recommend it all the time. It's a great resource just to learn how to actually prep 
some of these vegetables that came in our CSA box. Love it. Um, so there was a recipe for kohlrabi fried rice and we still will occasionally make really? that recipe. Yeah. <laughs> so other than food, are there other things that you're doing to maintain your own personal health that other people might borrow from you? Absolutely. Um, exercise is really critical and I frame it more as movement um, because I think, you know, a lot of us will have this, these preconceived notions or thoughts about exercise that maybe don't serve us, um, yeah. that it's always has to be painful or, you know, no pain, no gain. Um, and, you know, whatever feels good, both emotionally and physically, I think that's really important if you're dealing with any painful type condition um, or a condition where if you overdo it, you end up paying for it several days later. So, it, you know, kind of this idea of moving, but not too much and, um, and doing what feels good. Sleep for me is critical. So I actually have it set on my calendar of like sleep, like blocked like when out to go to bed. Exactly. Um, so that it's like a date for myself. Um, because I've realized that my fatigue and pain levels really do are really affected if I'm not getting good sleep. Stress, as we talked about before, learning how to manage stress and um, allow yourself to feel feelings and, you know, having some agency and realizing how our thoughts really do influence our feelings and our actions and how we show up in the world, yeah. um, I think has made a whole heck of a lot of difference for someone who's always been very type A people pleaser, like <laughs> yeah. letting go of all that stuff, yeah. learning how to get some boundaries, awesome. even with my inbox, which I'm still working on. <laughs> and then the real power in meaningful human connection. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that can show up in so many ways with our children, with our partners, but increasingly I'm seeing the power of that with my patients and that's been really, really wonderful to see where, you know, three years ago I was deep in burnout. I felt physically and emotionally like total crap. I thought I was going to leave clinical medicine at, you know, at certain points and in kind of this healing myself in many ways, you know, I still have Sjogren's, I still take my meds that, you know, like, but this holistic idea of like, learning self-compassion, learning, you know, some of these practices, like I've rediscovered also my joy for clinical medicine. Wow. And my, my immense like desire and vision of like helping those who were me or, you know, like yeah. that are, you know, being gaslit or not, not feeling seen or heard or believed. Or knowing what to do to make it better. Yeah. Um, or maybe like, maybe they actually are more in tune with their body. They're listening to their body a lot sooner than I did. Right. Yeah. And maybe they just, their labs are still normal because their immune system has not attacked their body so much that we're seeing it show up in actual, you know, abnormal labs. Like you may be on the way to something, but that doesn't mean that we can't watch and listen and help you make the changes to maybe alter that trajectory for the long term. That's beautiful. And I'm struck by this whole change in lifestyle for you. Not only did it help your Sjogren symptoms make you feel better physically, but it helped you reconnect with your joy for your profession too. Yeah. Which is huge. And I think that says something about if we can if we can care for ourselves, then sometimes other even hard things become joyful again instead of just something we want to run away from. 
Yeah. I think what's so hard though, for, for so many of us in clinical practice though, is there is immense yeah. pressure hundred percent to see more people in less time. And that, I mean, that's where the boundaries have come up. Like yep. even recently was asked like, Oh, do you want us to double book like on your schedule for like no. this particular type of appointment? And I was like, I, I, um, I have a really great relationship with our clinic manager. I was like, I think you forgot who you're emailing. Like <laughs> Good that's, for not, you. that's not going to happen. Like good I go, that's not you. how I practice medicine and it's not good for patient care. And I'm already tend to run 30 minutes behind. So if, you know, if you want me to be running 90 minutes behind, like then we're going to just make adjustments elsewhere. Good for you. I'm so proud of you. There's a, a phrase that I really like, which is we teach people how to treat us. Mm-hmm. And you just did an incredible job of reminding that person what your boundaries are and and honoring yourself by keeping them. Good for you. Yeah, That's and, hard to do. And, I'm so proud. And of here's you. the deal: like, I probably will end up. You know, I certainly will make less That's as okay. a result. That's okay. That's okay. You'll be healthier and happier, right? Yeah, and yeah. I'm living in alignment with how how I would want to be treated. So if people want to work with you, know more about you, learn what you do. What do they do? Yeah. So I have a website, which is drkarawada.com. If you click up in the upper right-hand corner, you can subscribe to my email list. That's a great way to stay on top of what we're doing. We um, Every year we have um, the, we're just coming up on the second annual virtual Shogren Summit, which is a really awesome event, two-day virtual event, we're bringing together over 28 speakers, like hands-on workshops, wow. space for folks to network together. Um, so I'm really excited um, about that event. So there's information for tickets like through there, nice. um, or you can visit showgrinssummit.com. Um, though you probably want to go to drkarawada.com because most people don't know how to spell Shogrins because it looks and sounds <laughs> like an Ikea chair. Yes, it does. Um, and then um, also on my website, there's a little link that says work with me. And so that will kind of go through. I do some medical mentoring sessions. Um, I have a, a podcast of my own, like a great free resource. Um, and then um, we'll be launching a group program called Becoming Immune Confident um, later this spring. So I'm really excited about all the fun things to come. Awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Now, I always ask people, you've given so many incredible tips, but for one piece of homework. So the people who are listening, and it can be in any of the domains that we talked about or something new, what one piece of homework would you like people to practice this week for their own well-being? Well, so, you know, something I keep going back to is our our healthcare and our encounters with our healthcare, um, either physicians or other healthcare professionals really are an exchange of information. And so if we think about, you know, that, um, I think it's really important to plan ahead before your next medical appointment Mm -hmm. and also give yourself the grace and realize that we all have this tendency to go into fight or flight mode when we go to that appointment. So if you were able to just take a few minutes, day or two, or even a week before your appointment and think about what you need to communicate ahead of time, jot it down. Um, that can really help increase the effectiveness and efficiency of your visit as well. 
um, because you're using that planning part of your brain that you're not going to have access to when you're like feeling like that, that white coat, you know, that stuff that makes your blood pressure go up that white coat hypertension. Um, so that's, um, you know, one trick that I found really helpful. The other is realizing that you are the owner of your medical record and your story. So the more that you can know your story, ask for copies of your records, kind of keep that handy is really important because we live in this amazing information age. You know, we can Google something and get like a million different answers, but the average patient generates like 40,000 pages worth of data in the electronic medical record every year. So your doctor may have technically have access to that information, but it may not be at their fingertips when you need it. Right. So if you can help them out with that, it's really helpful and can really help um, you work together on coming up with a game plan for your, your visit. And then just wrap up that visit by um, confirming the plan. You know, what are you responsible for and what are they going to do? And how can you best communicate between visits if you need to? Excellent. And and I'm going to point out that that is whether you are a physician, other clinician, or not those things. Because even for you, even as a physician, when you're in the patient's chair, it all goes out the window, right? <laughs> it's all different. I love my rheumatologist. Like she's a doll, but I still hurries up. Right, right. It's totally different when we're in the patient's yeah. chair. So thank you so much for that. This was such a, a joy to talk to you. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. I hope we can speak again soon. We absolutely will do that. So thank you all so much for listening. And truly this time, if you know any rheumatologists, any people who struggle with Sjogren's or related illnesses, please forward this to them because this is a really important work. Send it to your family practice physicians, your internal medicine physicians. This is a really important piece of information that Dr. Wada has shared, and I want you to share it with your network. So thanks so much. I'm so glad you're here and I'll see you next Thursday. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by the Integrative Palliative Institute, dedicated to whole person care for people with serious illness using all the tools that work. If you've always thought that there was a better way to practice medicine, you're right, and you've found your people. So help spread the word. Send this episode to a friend or colleague, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and reach out anytime and come learn with me. You can find more information and training programs at integrativepalliative.com.